You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. So in the fall of 79, two families faced one another in the field of battle. On one side, we had the Hatfield family from West Virginia. On the other side, we had the McCoys from Kentucky. And they'd face one another in a feud, a family feud that feels like it had gone on for a hundred years. And here they came to this pivotal battle in 79, and they faced one another, and it all came down to this battle. Nobody even knew anymore like how it started. There's myths and rumors of what went on to cause this feud to happen. But many had died because of this feud, and the fighting continued until this one day. This final battle, after, after days of fighting together on this field, it all came down to this one question. What do you do to stop the hiccups? And as they came down the row and answered the question, Cousin Debbie McCoy had the final answer, which was put a paper bag over your head. And Richard Dawson looks at the screen, he says, survey says, and bing, 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 the McCoys win it all, finally settling the Hatfield and McCoy family feud once and for all on the hit game show, The Family Feud, in the fall of 1976. We have been fascinated, and I don't really understand why, but we have been fascinated, I think, as Americans, as people, about the Hatfield and McCoy feud for years and years and years. In fact, it, it spawned a, a movie, a cartoon movie. That's where I first heard the story. Uh, it spawned a miniseries. We had Kevin Costner in there as, as Devil Ants Hatfield. Uh, we had a, a miniseries. There is even, uh, there, there's books you can read. There's even a dinner theater in Pigeon Forge where you can relive the Hatfield and McCoy family feud on your own. It spawned a game show. The Family Feud game show is based off the idea from the Hatfield and McCoy feud. So I think what I learned from this or what I see from this is it's an example of how much we love in America. We love a good rivalry, right? We love this idea of one person versus another. We love a good rivalry. The idea of like Nikola Tesla versus Thomas Edison. The Beatles versus the Rolling Stones. Nancy Kerrigan versus Tanya Harding or... Batman and apparently Superman is also a rivalry. I don't know why, but they are. We love a good rivalry, and so much so that I think sometimes we try to place a rivalry where there is not one, right? Like we like to try and take two people and just like in our minds imagine that they hate one another, that they're always competing with one another. And the Bible is not free from that. This, I think, happens in the Bible with two characters in particular that we are going to meet and come in contact with today in Acts chapter 21. And it's the person of Paul and the other person of James. So we have two apostles, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James, leaders in the church, missionaries in in the first century world. And and I think as time has gone on and we've read through their writings, we have the book of James from James and then several letters in the New Testament from Paul as we've gone through their writings, I think we've wanted to kind of put these two in competition to try and imagine a rivalry between the two. And we're going to dive into some of that this morning and kind of ask why. But I'd like to just say on the get-go, like, I don't think there's any rivalry between these two guys. I don't think there's any incongruency between them. But I think as we've gone through, historians have wanted to, like, make something up there. There's a a whole, like, guy, I found one guy, if you just Google, like, James versus Paul, I found one whole thing where there's, like, a documentary, there's books that have been written, and, and these crazy ideas that just are not founded in Scripture. But this morning we get to see these two guys meet one another. 
And I'm going to use that as kind of an excuse to take a hard turn out of the book of Acts and just talk about some other things between these two guys. But we'll get into that later. But So here we go. In Acts chapter 21, okay, so Paul has been moving towards Jerusalem. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about this. Paul feels pressed by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he knows full well that in Jerusalem, he will probably be arrested. And that arrest could eventually lead to his execution, to his death. And so, but still, Paul has been making his way to Jerusalem because he's been collecting this offering as he's gone about to these different churches, planting them, taking up an offering that started to help out with a famine in Jerusalem. And now he's going to deliver this offering back to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is a dangerous place for a guy like Paul. And we're going to see why later. But he gets to Jerusalem and there he meets James. And James is not the first time they've met, but James being the half-brother of Jesus. James being the guy that wrote the book of James. James stayed in Jerusalem. So Paul went out of Jerusalem, like around the Roman world, and spread the word mainly to the Gentiles there. But James stayed in Jerusalem and did ministry to the Jewish believers there. And so in Acts 21, verse 17, it says this. Luke is writing, and and Luke is there with Paul, and he says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Are we going to have a showdown? Like, are these two guys going to get along? Like, how is this going to go down? And, and here's what I want to talk about. Both of these guys, we can try and pit them against each other, put them on opposite sides, but I think really where this rivalry came from, the myth of this rivalry between the two was born, was out of some of their writings that we get later on. So in the book of Galatians, Paul writes to this church in Galatians, and here's what Paul says to these Christians there. He says, yet we know that the person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But then if you're to flip over in your Bible a little ways, you get to James, and here Paul's just said it's, by, it's not by works, it's by faith that a person is justified. But then here's what James says in James 2.24. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we have these two places, and I think it's from these two verses where Paul says it's by faith and not by works that one is justified, and then James says it's by faith and works that one is justified and is saved. And I think it's from these two pivotal verses, these two key pieces of writings that we have decided like Paul and James did not see eye to eye. Like Paul and James did not get along. And we've imagined this rivalry there. And I don't think that rivalry is very, very true. We'll see that in this story. But we are left with this kind of question of, well, which is it? Is it what Paul says in Galatians that it's only by faith that we are justified? Or is it what James says in the book of James that it's by faith and works that we are justified? Which is it? Because this would be a contradiction in our scriptures, which would mean that the scripture being God-breathed, well, God is contradicting himself, then is the Bible God-breathed? Like, can we trust it? What happens with all that? So we got to dive into these two verses and try and see if we can bring the person, the theology of Paul, and the theology of James together and unite them. But in order to do this, we got to look at the further concept of what they're talking about, the further context of what they're talking about. So I want to do this today with a little bit of a visual. And so I've got here on the table... Some words for it. It's like Sesame Street. You know how Sesame Street always brings out like the big letter, like the letter of the day, W, and you get to look at it. It helps me. It helps me to see. And so we're going to go Sesame Street today. So we've got justification. We have to understand this concept of justification in order to go further. Justification is just a fancy word for being made just, 
for something being made right, okay? So we could sub this out even for, as we broaden the concept, for something like salvation. Like one finds salvation, they are saved, they are made right with Jesus. But the idea is, it kind of inferred in this is this idea that we are not right, that we have sin, we have evil, we have darkness in our lives that has made us not right, not just with the being of God. Because God doesn't have sin, God doesn't have evil, God doesn't have darkness. And so we aren't right with God, we're not just. And so we need to be justified with God for our sin, for the darkness that we have brought in. And so that's this idea of justification, being made right. Being square, being settled out with someone, having no injustice in between you, justice being served. Have I said the word just enough for you to kind of get the concept? I hope so. Uh, So here's the idea of justification. And again, we could kind of sub this out for some other words to broaden it. But here's what Paul says. Paul says, it is justification comes not by, let me find my other pieces here, not by works. He says, it's not by works that you're saved, which this was the Old Testament concept that works would equal justification, right? So we're beginning to build a math formula. This right here was the Old Testament that works equal justification, And so if we look throughout the Old Testament, that's why God gave them the law of Moses. That's why on Sinai, Moses was given the tablets and the plans for this tabernacle and these elaborate like dietary systems and rituals and all of this stuff so that Israel could be made clean, so that Israel could be made right by their behavior with God. Works equaled justification. And that's how it was in the Old Testament, that works equaled justification justification. If you did the right sacrifice at the right time, if you had the right diet, if you did all of the stuff, you would be right with God. You'd be made just with God. But here's what we see in the Old Testament is that this never worked. Not because of God's plan was flawed, but because humans had messed it up. And so as we open just the first pages, we see Adam and Eve, they can't pull off the works. They disobey God immediately. And then their kids have rivalries too. Cain kills Abel. Talk about a serious rivalry. The works aren't pulling it off. Then we fast forward a little bit. Humanity has gotten so evil. Humanity is so not justified that God has to hit the reset button. Wipes out all of humanity, but spares one righteous guy, Noah and his family. And they have this whole deal with the ark and the worldwide flood. But then immediately after the boat lands, we read the story, weird story, about Noah who goes on like an overnight bender and then ends up in his tent naked and drunk. Again, works aren't happening for him. If we fast forward, we get to the point where Israel's in captivity. They're being held as slaves in Egypt. And we see Moses, this guy who's supposed to be a servant of God, kill a dude. So Moses kills the dude. Again, works aren't happening for Moses. And so then fast forward, we get to the place where God gives them the fullness of the law and says, here's what you do. You got to worship no other gods. You got to do all of these things. And then as Moses is coming down the mountain, like the tablets haven't even made it off the mountain. And we find out that the Israelites have built a golden calf and now they're bowing down to this golden baby cow and worshiping that. Works weren't happening. And that's just the first two books of the Bible. If we went forward, we could find over and over and over again of how works were not working out for humanity. That by behavior, by a set of laws and things, it just wasn't happening for humanity. And so that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament plan is that works equal justification. But then Paul comes in and he says it's not just about works. It's not our works that equal justification. It's our faith that equals justification. But if we could just pause here like, This is Old Testament, right? But isn't it also sometimes today for us? Do you think we, and maybe not us, but other people, people outside of the faith even, might fall into this category of works equal justification, of it's what I do, 
that, that justifies me. And maybe it's not in terms of like your diet, like you're probably not going by a Jewish diet or you're probably not going through like ritual sacrifices and purification at the temple. But don't we sometimes fall into this trap of what I do, how I behave, that equals how I stand with God, of whether or not I'm making it to heaven, right? Have you ever heard somebody talked about maybe who's like passed away or at their funeral or something? They're like, but she was such a good person. She was so good, like I know she's in heaven looking down on us. That's works equals justification, and that's not what Paul talks about. That's the Old Testament style. And sometimes I think we put this on ourselves here. We're like, well, I got I to gotta go to church the right amount of times. I got to read my Bible the right amount of times. I got to make sure that these negative things aren't in my life so that my works can equal my justification so that God will love me. I got to behave right. I got to act right. When we fall into that trap, we're falling back into this Old Testament system that works equal justification, it only looks a little bit different. So what Paul says is, Paul comes in and he says, it's not works. Let me find it. Where is it? It's faith. Because it's not your works, it's your faith that equals justification. And it's not just faith on its own, it's faith in Jesus, right? So Jesus came and Jesus' death on the cross and our faith in it is what makes us right with God is our justification because of what Jesus did and our belief in that. And I overthought this whole like box analogy and category. Like we could probably, maybe should put the cross over here like because the cross came first, first and then it's our faith in the cross. Like it doesn't really matter. Like they're both in the same. It's our faith in Jesus, Jesus' work on the cross and our faith in him and what he did for us that then makes us right with God. That brings us justification. And so that's what Paul is talking about. That's what Paul says in Romans 5.8. Here's how Paul explains this category right here. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, as one sin led to punishment for all men, so that's Adam and Eve in the garden, we all become sinners, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's what Jesus did that brings us justification, not what we do. Not our works, not our behavior that makes us right with God. Jesus' death on our behalf. The fact that Jesus came and he knew no sin. That every bit of the law, every bit of like right and wrong, Jesus did correctly. Even though the Bible tells us he faced every temptation, everything we've been tempted to do, Jesus faced that temptation as well, but he did not give in to that temptation. Instead, he lived a sinless life. And then he acted as a sacrifice for us on the cross. So that now we don't have to go through the works of sacrifice. We just have to believe that that Jesus is the Son of God and that we need him and we need his forgiveness in our lives so that we can be justified. Faith in Jesus equals justification. And that's what Paul says in the verse that we talked about, Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that the person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So that's what Paul says. But then what about James's message? Because James in James 2, 4, he says this, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So now James is adding works back to it. So James is saying it's works and it's faith. And so we have a little bit of like this, this contradiction maybe or this incongruity. How do we work this out? 
And so I want to hop back into our story of James and Paul and just see, like, well, how did they receive one another? How did they act around each other? You know, if they didn't see eye to eye in theology, like, how did they behave with each other? So let's go back to Acts chapter 21 and watch this meeting. Again, it picks up here. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. There's embracing. Paul meets James, and they hug each other. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all of the elders were present. And then it says, after greeting them... He related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul says, man, I went to this city over here in Ephesus, and there were these church leaders I met in Ephesus, and it was awesome, and they came to know Jesus. And then I was able to do this miracle over here, and this person was healed, and through that healing, other people came to Jesus. And over here, like it was weird, like I got stoned, and people thought I was dead, but then I went back into the city, and more people came to Jesus. So over and over and over again, Paul is talking about these Gentiles, these people that didn't grow up Jewish, didn't grow up in Jerusalem, coming to know Christ. And so it's James and the other elders, the other leaders of the church in Jerusalem that have been working primarily with people that did grow up as Jewish people, they hear Paul say this, and then verse 20 says, and when they heard it, they glorified God. They're pumped that this is what Paul's been doing in his ministry. They're not like, hey, but yeah, it's not for these, uh, it's not supposed to be for Gentiles. Like, they're not part of the family, Paul. It's supposed to be about us Jews. We're past that. We figured that out by now. Peter had that dream where the sheet came down and said, take and eat. There's nothing unclean that God has created, saying, like, you don't have to follow the old dietary laws. We've gotten past the whole topic. Like, they talked about this at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, which this chapter has a lot in common with Acts chapter 15. And if you forget that message, you can go back on the podcast and listen about the Jerusalem Council. They settled, what parts of the law do we follow? Do we have to follow? That's been settled. And so James and the other Jewish leaders of the church, they celebrate what happens with Paul. And then they say this. And then they said to them, you see, brother, how many thousands are among the Jews? This is probably James talking. How many thousands among the Jews of those who have believed? And they're zealous for the law. So now I have these Jewish people who have become Christians, but they're still pumped up about the law. And it says, they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So apparently there's these other two groups. We haven't, we've come in contact with some, but we don't really know their names. But there's this group of Jewish people that have become Christians, and they still want to hold to the old customs, which is fine. And Paul would even say that that's fine. Like Paul basically says like, it doesn't matter. You can do what you want. Just understand that it's not those old customs that bring about your justification. It's not the works that bring it. You can still do the works, and that's cool if you want to do that, but it's not required. And the, the matter of circumcision, which was a sign that you can, you know, look up later, uh, was something that Jewish people were supposed to do and was more prevalent back then because they had like public baths and stuff we don't have now, but it was like a marking on a person's body that would show, I am a Jewish man. And so they're saying like, the rumor is that these people are saying, you're pitching out circumcision, that you're saying, don't follow any of the law, that you are anti-Moses. So you're about this other group of people, these kind of rabble-rousers that are causing trouble in the church and trying to pull from the ministry that Paul's been performing, trying to stop people from coming to Christ by saying, this Paul guy, he is an anti-Moses guy. You don't want to be with him. He's saying, get rid of circumcision, get rid of all the law, which we know is just not true. Because we even saw when Paul kind of adopted Timothy into the ministry and began mentoring him, Paul had Timothy circumcised. We don't know how Timothy felt about it. I can't imagine it was fun. Uh, but we see that Paul is not saying, no, get rid of all of this stuff. Paul is saying, just understand that those works, the Old Testament stuff, that's not what brings about your justification. 
So as James introduces this problem to Paul, and he's like, here's, here's our problem is these guys, they, they don't like you. And there's, there's trouble brewing, and if we're not careful, it could be dangerous for you. It could result in your arrest, even your execution, which we all kind of know that's probably the inevitable that Paul is steering towards. But James is going to try and stop that. And so here's what they do. We've got our problem. Here's their plan in verse 23. They say, do therefore what we tell you. We've got four men who are under a vow. This is most likely the Old Testament Nazarite vow, which we won't get into today, but it was kind of this like the sign of being like the uber Jew, like being like super religious. And you'd take this vow where you wouldn't eat grapes. You wouldn't even touch like grape skins. You definitely wouldn't drink any wine or anything fermented during a certain period of time. And then also during that period of time, you wouldn't cut your hair, you wouldn't shave your face, none of that stuff to show. Like I'm, I'm taking this time out to really focus on God. I'm taking this vow to focus on God. It was as Jewish as you could be, as religious as you could be. And so James and the other elders, elders, they've got these four men that have taken a vow like this, and it seems like these men are also believers in Christ, but they're still adhering to parts of this law. And they say, go with these guys. They say, take these four men and purify yourself along with them. They're saying, Paul, take part in the vow and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And so their vow will then be over. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what has been told about you but that you yourself live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment. This is referring again back to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. We sent a letter that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and when the offering was presented for each, of, each one of them. So there's a problem And then James, this supposed imagined rival of Paul, James hatches a plan to try and steer off the problem, to try and convince people that that are against Paul or thinking that Paul is something that he's not, to convince them differently so that they too can embrace Paul as James has embraced Paul. And we get again into these ideas of, well, what of the law have we kept? What of the Old Testament was important? And again, that's what we talked about in Acts chapter 15, of, of these certain things, these three things of, of food sacrifice to idol. And that has to do with like the blood and the way it was strangled and all that stuff, because we want to just be far away from idols. And then they also talked about sexual immorality. We're saying we're going to retain the sexual ethic that God set up in the Old Testament. We're going to still live by that. And then in Acts 15, it doesn't talk about it here, but also we want to remember the poor. These are the actions talked about in the Old Testament that we think are pivotal to the life of a Christian. And so Paul does it. He goes through it. And they try and stop the tide that's coming at Paul of arrest and other things. But here's what I really want to point out there is that between James and Paul, between the Jewish leaders, the ones that have been focusing on the Jewish ministry and the ones that have been focusing on ministry to the Gentiles, there's no conflict They don't come to blows. They don't have an argument. They embrace, they glorify God about one another's ministries, and then they hatch a plan of how to better minister and and minister safely in Jerusalem. But yet we're still left with this right here. So how do we justify this? How do we bring this into a relationship? Can it be done? Well, I think so. And I think if we read the fullness of the, the two verses that we talked about earlier, we'll get there. Okay, so here's what Paul said, Galatians 2.16, going back to that verse again. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through Jesus Christ. And so we know, here's what Paul is saying, it's not this right here. It's not works of the law that brings us justification. It's not like this, it's not works of the law. 
And I think throughout the years, we've just kind of skipped out this part about the law and focused on the works and saying, like, it's, it's all about works, right? Well, this becomes into, like, mis- misunderstood theology. It's works of the law. It's not just your behavior. It's not all that stuff. It's trying to follow the law. So Paul says there's nothing in the sacrifices that can save you. There's nothing in what you're eating or not eating that will save you. The rituals, that won't save you. All of that stuff, it cannot bring you salvation. And so Paul's saying it's not through the Old Testament law that you will be saved. It is only through faith in Jesus that you will be saved. And then if we look at what James says, in James 2, if we spread out those verses, that chapter that we read about, James says this in James 2.14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He says, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So what James is talking about is saying, it's not just faith alone. There's also works that would go with this. And I think what James begins to talk about, he's not talking about the works of the law, Because in the chapters we read, he's talking about kindness and caring for one another. He doesn't bring up circumcision or diets. He brings up the way we interact with one another. He brings up the actions that Jesus did of caring for people. James says, the works I want to see is if you have enough, if you have two coats and you see somebody who's cold, if you give them that other coat, that's the works I'm talking about. That service, that caring for someone, that reflection of Jesus, that's what I'm talking about. He's saying, otherwise, you got two coats, you see somebody who's cold and you don't give them your coat. He's like, how do you reflect Jesus? What faith is that? That shows no faith in Jesus. The works that James is talking about, I would argue, another way we could put it, are works of the Spirit. That James begins talking about works of the Spirit. And I say they're works of the Spirit because I would argue that these works do not come from us, at least not naturally. These are the works we saw Jesus doing, feeding the poor, healing the sick, going to those who, who were hungry, and, and, and all of this stuff. Did I say healing the poor and feeding the sick? I think I got it reversed. I got in a rush. Sorry. You know what I'm talking about. I think Jesus, they're all in the same category. kind of. These are the works we're talking about, works that I would argue do not come natural to us. Here, here's why. I say this kind of based off of like who I am, knowing me and my day in and day out. Like The works of the Spirit don't come natural to me selfishness and greed, that kind of stuff comes natural to me. Me first comes natural to me. The works of the Spirit are me second. But then not also, not just me, but I would also say I've been studying uh, for about seven years now children, uh, very close up. I have three in particular that I focus on and I study their actions. And I have found that among these three children, I know it's not a huge swath of the population, among these three children, the works of the Spirit do not come naturally. What comes naturally to my children is greed and selfishness. Nobody had to teach them that. They just learned it. And you can come witness it with me if you ever see one of them playing with a toy that the other one wants. Like, they will fight to the end over that toy. In fact, we see it with our littlest one, Levi, now, who's just over a year old. Levi, he, he loves to eat, and, uh, and he really loves to eat. If you see him, you'll, you'll understand. He loves to eat. But when he is done eating, he is done eating. So, like, if he doesn't want to eat anymore and he's in his high chair, he just starts throwing everything off of his high chair into the floor. And to us, that's supposed to be the signal of Levi's done, get him out of the high chair. And we're trying to stop this behavior because that's not a considerate behavior. That's not a works of the Spirit. Now we have to clean and all of this stuff. And so, like, we'll be like, no, Levi, no. we yell at him, like, quit. And he doesn't listen to that. He's just like, ha-ha, just still throwing stuff. So we got to introduce the next level of punishment. I know it's controversial, whatever. We give him a little pop on the hand because he's young. He understands the pop on the hand. 
Well, the other day, Levi's throwing the stuff on the floor. We told him no. He doesn't respect the no. And then Christy says, okay, Levi, that's it. And he throws stuff on the floor again. And then he reached out his hand to be popped. Where does this come from? The works of the Spirit does not come naturally to us. Selfishness and greed and pride comes naturally to us. And so I would say these works that James is talking about, they have to come from somewhere else. And I believe it only comes from the Spirit, which we can only get once we have been justified and forgiven by Jesus Christ. And so I think our complete formula is this. That it's not just works, it's not just faith, it's not faith and works that equals our faith. It's that faith in Jesus equals justification. And that leads to, I got another piece of the puzzle, that leads to, oh, it may not fit. That leads to works of the Spirit. And so this is a, what I think is a complete picture of faith filled out between James and Paul in their writings. I don't think either one would have said that they meant something else. But Paul is saying it's not the Old Testament law. Paul doesn't neglect the works of the Spirit. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, faithfulness, kindness, all those others that I should have memorized and can't. Uh, that's what Paul talks about. Paul talks about living as Christ in this world. And then James is saying the same thing. He's not saying, well, we need the works of the Old Testament. You've got to go back to the old ways. He's saying we need the works of Jesus in our life. And without the works of Jesus in your life, without the work of Spirit in your life, James would argue, like, well, maybe you don't actually have faith because if you have the faith, you will have the works. If you've taken Jesus into your life, you're going to begin to look like Jesus. And so that becomes our complete formula. And so I think between James and Paul, there's nothing that doesn't jive. There's no incongruency here, no contradiction between James and Paul. Instead, we get filled out a complete formula of faith. That faith in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross equals our justification. And that leads to works of the Spirit. So what does this mean for us? Here's my, here's my question or my challenge this morning, and it's this. Is this formula reflected in your life? Has this formula played out in your life? Or are you still maybe relying on an old system where you're going after the works of the law? You're going after your behavior over trying to tip a scale and do more good than you've done bad. Have you fallen into that trap? This focus on behavior or when you get out of line, when you feel like you don't do it right or you fall back into this bad habit, that, man, that means I can't be justified because you've gotten into the wrong system. You've worked out the wrong formula in your life that works equals justification, that works as the law equals justification. If that's you, I want to just lift that burden off of you so that you know it's not your behavior that earns your way to heaven. It was Jesus' behavior on the cross that earns our way to eternity with him. And so we can be freed of the tyranny of that. But then also, if your formula has only gotten to hear of, man, it was my faith in Jesus and now I'm justified, but that's where it stops, there's also a problem. It doesn't mean, well, I've got faith in Jesus, I've been justified, so now I can do whatever I want. Now it doesn't matter what my life looks like because I've been justified. I don't think that's what Paul and James are talking about. I don't think that's what re is reflected in our scriptures. Instead, there's this idea of once we put our faith in Christ and we've been justified, everything about us slowly begins to change. And through the work of the Spirit, we begin to look more and more like Jesus. The fancy theological term for that is sanctification. We become sanctified. We become more like our Savior. And so if we leave off this part I think there is a real question. Man, if you don't have the works of the Spirit, have you actually been sincere in your commitment 
to Jesus? Have you actually given your life to Jesus, made him king of your life, or is something missing? So my challenge for all of us this morning is just to look at our lives and say, man, where am I in this formula? Have I left off a part? Do I need to take the first step of just putting my faith in Jesus so I can be justified and open up to a life of more good things? Have I overemphasized my work, my behavior, or have I underemphasized my behavior and neglected, am I looking like Jesus or not? That's my challenge for us this morning as we go into our last song. And I want to just end with one verse where I think Paul pulls all of this together, and it's in Galatians 5, 5 through 6. And Paul says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts. Neither works or not doing works counts. But only faith working through love. In our lives, do we have faith working through love? Let me pray for us. God, thank you that when we couldn't do it by works of the law, when our behavior wasn't cutting it, God, you made a different plan. And that plan spared us from sin. That plan spared us from death. That plan spared us from the separation of hell from you. And so God, I thank you that you developed this formula that doesn't rely on our behavior, our works, but instead relies on the obedience of your son Jesus and his death on the cross for us. And so God, I pray that we would be challenged to a faith, a genuine faith in your son, a genuine faith on that, in that display of love on the cross. And if there's anybody here who hasn't experienced that this morning, I pray that you would speak to them, you'd pull them, you'd move them, God, to speak to someone about what they have to do to put their faith in you so that they can be justified, so that they can have eternity with you. And God, for others of us in this room, if we've emphasized one part of this formula over another, if we're focused too much on our works, God, I pray that you'd correct us. Help us to know that it's not about our behavior. It's not how good we are that makes you accept us. You accepted us even though we were bad. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. But God, I pray we'd also be challenged if we have neglected our works, our works of the Spirit. I pray that you would challenge us to see where we are neglecting others in our lives who need to be cared for when we have the means to do it and help us to be obedient and care for them. I pray, God, that you would grow those works in the Spirit in our lives so that we could have a complete and full formula of faith reflected in us out into your world. It's in your name we pray.